Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. This is pretty much Papa Culture Podcast, today discussing all things Wonder Woman. I'm Mark Linson-Meyer, and I couldn't decide while getting dressed today whether to jump through my lasso or just spin around as my hair loosens from its bun. I'm Erica Spires, and I really think the reason that we have so many liars around is because it's really, really hard to lasso anything. And I'm Brian Hurt. And I don't know how I feel about the way Wonder Woman 84 fetishizes the full and healthy shopping mall of the 1980s. And our guest. I'm Viberloo, and I spent my morning deflecting bullets and breaking the chains of man all before breakfast. <laughs> you got more done today than I will for, well, we're coming up on the end of the year here, but I still have a few days. Great to have you back with us, Vi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so stoked to be here. Absolutely. What's been going on in your world, Vi, in the past almost year? Yeah, since last we spoke, I moved from undergraduate to graduate student, and I spend my time researching comic books. That is my full-time gig, which I'm just over the moon about. That's amazing. So what is that degree? That is a history degree. Okay, how does that work, Vi? Come on. (laughs) I research comics as pieces of propaganda and as artwork that influenced post-war movements from after World War II. I love to study their origins. I study why people set them on fire. I spend all my time reading them, and and I feel pretty lucky to do so. So Vi is living her best life, and she's living a lot of people's best lives. So way to go. Thank you. Absolutely. I knew that she was the right person to have on here when I emailed her the idea, and she immediately came back with, oh, you should look at Justice League number one from 1987 because that's where Lord appears. And Barbara Ann Minerva as Cheetah appears in Wonder Woman volume two, number seven from August 1987 as well, and et cetera. Okay, we need to set some ground rules on what we are spoiling and what we are not. And I think there are three movies in particular, and that's the two Wonder Woman movies, including 2017's Wonder Woman and then Wonder Woman 84 that just came out, as well as Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which came out also in 2017. Is that right? Which is a biopic about the trio whose lives inspired and then went on to create Wonder Woman. Are we spoiling the hell out of all of them? Or are we going to go easy on any of them in case anyone listening hasn't seen them? I think we can at least spoil two of them. Okay, we can each spoil two, but it doesn't need to be the same two. (laughs) I think maybe not spoiling the ending of Wonder Woman 84 might be fair. What do you think? We'll spoil it in the after talk. Yes, I guess we can't assume everyone has HBO Max because I'm feeling like, really, can't you just pause and go watch the thing? But it's not within reach of everyone. So, well, we're very fresh off that. What'd you think? Let's have some immediate reactions to the film. Vi, start us off. You're the most steeped in this. Did it do justice to what you were expecting? I loved it. I really, really did. I've waited for this movie since the first one came out and then waited all through 2020 as it got pushed and pushed and pushed. And I was satisfied. I was happy. I was sad at times, but I was very in awe of how Patty Jenkins handled comic book storytelling in a year where we haven't 
seen any comic book storytelling. Everything's gotten bumped. So it was a really pleasant reminder of why I love this genre, why I love this character, and why I want to see more from her. Brian, you were the first of the three of us to watch. Do you want to go? I suppose that is true. I started watching it two minutes after I was able to. You know, there's so little appointment viewing anymore, and there really is no such thing as appointment movie viewing. So that was a first for me at 11.02 a.m. Central Time, the day it came out. I was really conflicted in my enjoyment of the movie. I did not like how the villains were created and portrayed and ultimately resolved in a way that I thought as strong as the treatment of Wonder Woman was and Diana, I just, I really need better villains than the ones we got. And I think, especially when you have a movie with two, they shouldn't be quite so similar. They didn't behave the same way, but I think they were fundamentally just flawed normies rather than true villains in a way that having just rewatched the first Wonder Woman, I, I think it was a different kind of movie. The one thing I will say before I pass it to the next person is I have a feeling that we got such a different movie from the first one in part because it was the same director. And Patty Jenkins was really conscious of the fact that she couldn't make the same movie without being accused of it in a way that if another director had been pulled in, likely they could have stuck to a more traditional type of story without having gotten that kind of criticism. What about you, Erica? I disagree with you, Brian. I was very disappointed, honestly, in the movie. I had fun with it, but I was disappointed in a lot of it, but it wasn't because of the villains. For me, it was, I think the handling of the rules in the world just didn't quite make sense. I felt like it was clumsy and sloppy in terms of its storytelling and script, but I thought the actors were all very, very good. And in particular, Pedro Pascal was really given and Kristen Wiig, they were both given material that would have been very difficult for a lot of actors to handle without it coming off as completely overwrought and cheesy. I know Pedro Pascal is known for doing a lot of Shakespeare, and I think he really sunk his teeth into this as though it was a grand Shakespearean role. And I don't think you could have done anything else with that and made it work. Let's get a fourth opinion here, man. We are all over. I don't know what quadrant is left for you, but let's let's get it. So I will give my... Summary assessment, but there's a reason in terms of the viewing conditions for this, I think. I did not like it at all at first. I thought it was a big pile of cheese that was slow moving and did not show anybody in a good light. As it proceeded, though, through the Raiders of the Lost Ark-esque action scenes and then the drama at the end, I liked it. It got me. Now, my explanation for that is, so I did not like Brian, stop on Christmas morning as we were opening presents and say, oh, it's time to watch Wonder Woman. We did it in the evening. But during that day, a new TV had been unveiled. Santa brought a 55-inch QLED. (laughs) So in setting it up, it suggested using this intelligent picture feature. Like, it'll analyze the lighting in the room and, you know, adjust itself appropriately. And so we started watching the movie and everything was so bright. It was like a freaking basketball game. And it really made everything look fake and cheesy. And I, I was reminded of how people reacted when The Hobbit, you know, in his pure digital form, 3D came out in the theaters and people were like, this is no good for this kind of movie because it's too clear. You can see the makeup on everybody's face. It's ridiculous. And so that was my perception of the first half of the movie. The soap opera effect, the telenovela effect is yes. what it's called. 
it just made the dialogue seem cheesier. And yeah, it made it seem exactly like the opening of a sitcom. Then we paused it and I like screwed around with it and turned that effect off and told it use movie mode. And the whole thing was kind of darker. And then coincidentally, from then on, it was a much better experience. So Yeah, I have to take an aside here and really recommend that people use this feature once in a while just to see what it is. There's a famous episode of, I think it's a 30 Rock where Jack quits drinking and... Like it becomes like a like a soap opera and like the camera, there's no more shake and it's so smooth. It just looks like it's this super cheap, steady single camera thing that is super creepy to watch. So I can't believe you watched half this movie that way, Mark. <laughs> I think, well, we have a new TV as well. It's also Samsung 55 inch and it's 4K. I think it might also be QLED. Yes, probably the, the same one. <laughs> and I noticed that same thing when she was like the first couple scenes when she was flying through the air and it just seemed so fake. But also, yes, I think I was aware of that as well as being when you have the technology to watch something and it's supposed to be better, sometimes it actually just points out flaws that you wouldn't have seen if you had the lesser TV. What do we do? Because then you watch like Game of Thrones and you can't watch it correctly because it's too dark unless you have the right kind of television. These are the difficult decisions we're dealing with at the end of 2020. I will say that my husband, who is also like the big comic book fan in our house, did like it better than I did. And I'm interested to hear more about what Vi thought because he actually brought some interesting perspective to it. Because there were times when I was rolling my eyes and he's like, actually, this makes sense to me because, and I won't spoil any of that. The attention to character building for Diana was important to me. And so I found in a lot of this movie that Patty Jenkins had pulled pieces from the comics that maybe you wouldn't expect her to, but that were very, very true to form. As Diana crushes firearms, and she says, I hate guns. I had a couple of people tell me, well, this is a political statement that I didn't need. And my response was, this is very much what she is in the comics. This is exactly who she is and what she stands for. So it was little moments like that that said that you took the time with this character to not just make her into a sequel character who's got no problems and she's badass and she's going to do all these things, but someone who has grown and grown in the way that all of your source material says that she's grown. I loved those little pieces of it. I think that is a good place to start with just Wonder Woman as an ideal, as an icon, as a model of virtue, considering not just this current movie, but her appearances sort of throughout. And that is, I think, the detail about the guns that you're referring to, Vi, is kind of indicative of this whole foreigner making judgments about us, as opposed to she's dressed in red, white, and blue. And... She is forced in the early comics to defend America. I'm going to go to America because America is the place where women can have the maximum equality. It was very much a, during World War II, how America is much better than the Nazis. And the early comics are all about her actually fighting Nazis, just like Captain America. But she's not Captain America. She is, if we need a Marvel thing, she's more the Submariner. I'm sure he'll get a movie eventually where who is like, defender of the ecology against the encroachments of man. Like she's that kind of the world of man is committing crimes against nature all over the place. And I must come compassionate, but still in judgment of us. Well, she's an other much the way Superman is, or I should say Kal-El is, right? She is among us, but she is not of us the way that Captain America is. So we just get this totally different view of her and we get her different view coming through, which can come across as totally judgmental, I suppose, depending on how it's handled. Also from the comics and in terms of, you know, we often talk about our priors and 
not just what we saw getting ready for these podcasts, but what we were exposed to in our lives. We had a Wonder Woman omnibus in our house. So all those early ones that Vi told us that we might get our hands on, and which I did reread some of, they were available from the library. I remember reading all those. And so the Amazon Olympics or the feats of strength, you know, I think they celebrate Festivus. These Amazons, they're clearly not Christians. And there were airing of grievances. I, I think the whole thing. It was great to see that. And in fact, I accidentally, in my efforts to see a couple Wonder Woman TV shows from the 1970s, I saw the one with Wonder Woman's younger sister, played by introducing Deborah Winger. And that was also a Feats of Strength episode where they were doing gymnastics on Paradise Island. So I, I got exposed to that a whole bunch of times in the last few days. I really enjoy seeing the comic book being pulled into the movies when it makes sense. When it works, somehow knowing that it's part of the mythology, you don't stop to think whether it's authentic to the story quite as much because you know it belongs there. The way in, I rewatched the first one, getting ready for this also, and Ares is crushing Diana in a sheet of concrete. And it's like, hey, it's just a little bit of the usual someone binding someone else up in Wonder Woman. This is, you know, exactly, there's nothing off brand about this at all. And I noticed you call it Paradise Island because. Themyscira is the hardest name to remember. It's this beautiful other place. It was Paradise Island for the original creators, probably much for that same reason. Didn't want to make her seem like she was an alien, essentially. And what better place to be from if you are going to pass judgment on mankind than paradise to come in and say, I I not only have an opinion, but I have a, a valid opinion. I have come from a world that is perfect. And uh, the comics weren't the first female utopia to exist, but they were definitely the first one to say that this female utopia has bearing on like our present day, that they pulled somebody away from paradise and stuck her in our world to say that there were problems and that they didn't just exist independent of one another. Now, after watching Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, also not like the catchiest title, I feel like. Um, (laughs) I was wondering, because we find out that one of the women who he was inspired by grew up in a school run by nuns, right? I wondered if that was part, and I don't know if you know this, Vi, like, is that part of what inspired him to have her come from a land full of just women? Whether or not he pulled that specifically from her background, I don't know. But he was already using the Amazon myth, and the Amazon myth already is about a land of just women. Now, whether or not they were real or what form they existed in, you know, is still kind of up for debate. But whether or not the rather kind of sexy virgin stereotype that Olive kind of embodied in his mind, whether that was implanted in the comics, I I don't quite know. Erica, on that, his wife is from a small island, right? The Isle of Man that she mentions. So it really shows that movie, the the amalgam of both women in his lives feeding into... Wonder Woman. And of course, their orgies all fell into, it's unkind to call it an orgy. They're just a early thruple. But the movie showed it as an orgy. So it's okay. Well, I, I, it's, uh, I don't know. But I guess one dressed as a Greek princess and one, or a Greek virgin, and one is a captain. And then the wife is somehow in a cheetah print. It's like, oh man, I feel like the origin every scene had was a little too portentous of Wonder Woman to come. I was like starting to look at every knickknack and thing in the room to see if this is going to be part of the Wonder Woman mythology. And sure enough, a transparent airplane appears. So there we go. (laughs) They sure did themselves a lot of favors casting Luke Evans as Professor Marston when he was not, in fact, a sprightly, young, 
very well-defined in the chest area man. That was not his go-to look, but he sure looks a lot like Steve Trevor. (laughs) Right. I pulled up as the first uh, sex scene happened. I pulled up the picture of the original three and I said, now I just want you to imagine right now in your mind's eye that you're watching this same scene and here's the thruple that you're watching. And he's like, yep. I'm like, very different. Casting means a lot in this movie. We all need to be excited by these three getting together. It was interesting, Mark, what you were you were saying about her choosing to come to America because these things were possible in America. And yes, there was, of course, that idealism in the time. But on the other hand, after watching this movie about Dr. Marston, I think what was interesting is that it wasn't that for them. He was in a relationship with two women and or they were all in a relationship together and they had to keep it secret. And America was not a place where they could just live the lives that they wanted to live. So I think that brings up some interesting points of like, is this something that they still believed America could be? And that's what they're fighting for. Because, you know, did they just happen to use America because that's where they lived then? Because they could have used another, they could have just used a completely magical place to tell these stories. But it's almost like they wanted to bring it to life on the soil where they were not given such freedoms. Marston was super concerned with this concept of psychological propaganda. I wonder if that plays into the the question that you're asking, because he saw opportunities, I think, in the United States, given the rise of just the comic book industry itself, but also the possibilities coming from the birth control movement, from the early suffrage movement, from the feminist movement. And yet he could step back and say there is more to be done. So in a way, I think Wonder Woman is both for him. She is psychological propaganda for the perfect woman is what he wanted her to be. But that perfect woman needs an environment where she can be better and an environment that she can already exist in. It was good to see that biopic to get a sense of how peculiar his psychological theories were. This very much informs, of course, a big critique now would be these new films. They have a female director, even though this is something that's put forward as, well, there's a a superhero that little girls could look up to, that finally they don't have to see themselves as somebody to be rescued. They can see themselves in the position of power. But from what I'm reading, the readership was still 90% male, at least when it started. And the writers, certainly Moulton himself, and then not Moulton. Professor James Marsden. That's what I keep thinking of. Yes. Written as Charles Bolton was his pseudonym to start with. Professor Marsden, of course, is male and he's creating this thing that is self-consciously propaganda. And one of the messages I read about was this whole thing about bondage is submission to loving authority. And this is actually directly echoes something written around the same time by Simone Weil, which is that authority and submission to authority is necessary for civilization to exist. That is not a political message (laughs) that people throw around a lot now. And it's certainly nothing that seems to show up in the current movie that I saw. It's weird. It is very weird. And Marston was a weird man. But this concept of, of loving authority is so interesting because I think maybe what we're missing now is the loving piece. That it is not a one-way exchange. And his DISC theory that he discusses, his theories of submission, require that both parties be willing to either submit or be submitted to in a way that is beneficial for them both. And I wonder if in this 2020 moment, we are aware that we don't necessarily have a loving authority. We simply have authority. So to create a message that says you should submit and submit willingly, 
is not a mutual exchange at this time. Maybe if it was, we would see a Wonder Woman that is super pro-government or, or pro-rules, whatever she would end up being. I think in that movie, they draw that distinction between submission and compliance, right? And the willing and sort of the loving submission versus the unwilling or the compliance by force or by whatever. And and I think we do have a dark echo of, of Wonder Woman and the boys, which but I don't think we've spoken since we all watched that. Is that something you're watching also on, is it Amazon? Are you watching the boys that I guess it's two seasons now? I have not watched the boys. I read Watchmen. I gave Watchmen a healthy try. And then I decided I like my superheroes. Very pure, very <laughs> very non-graphic, but no, I've heard I've heard wonderful things about it, and I am actually looking forward to giving it a watch. Hey guys, let's take a moment for a sponsor break. So it's the new year, and maybe you've made a resolution to read more. Or you're going to do something that keeps your body and hands busy, but you need something to listen to. Either way, what you're looking for in 2021 is Audible, the leading producer of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks. If you're a pretty much pop listener... You've heard me mention Richard Adams' classic Watership Down more than once. Audible released a new audio version of this book in 2019 performed by Peter Capaldi, the 12th Doctor from Doctor Who. If you haven't ever joined Hazel, Fiverr, and the other rabbits on their odyssey from the Sandalford Warren to Watership Down, then you're really in for a treat. In fact, I'm a little jealous of you. I've been an Audible customer for six years, and now is a great time for you to become one too. Just visit audible.com slash pretty or text PRETTY to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. This gives you access to thousands of titles, including podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, and exclusive Audible originals, all accessible with a convenient all-in-one app. And even if you are an Audible long-timer like me, you'll be excited to learn about Audible Plus, a new plan that features unlimited listening to select content. I have E.H. Gombrich's A Little History of the World queued up, as read by the incomparable Ralph Kosham. I almost can't wait to do the laundry and dig in. Once again, visit audible.com slash pretty or text pretty to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. Now back to Pretty Much Pop. I am curious, since you are the scholar here, to see really what becomes of Wonder Woman post-World War II and post-Marston, because he died shortly after the war was over. And this whole idea of this American ideal, in part, of course, had to do with there being a war on. And I think part of it had to do with him covering his ass a little bit and saying, well, no, we're doing this for, you know, towards a, a standard. This is a, something we should all be striving to as Americans, not even necessarily as, as men and women, or at least that's, I think, something he could always cloak it in. But how did Wonder Woman transform in maybe that into the 50s? It's so clear to me, sort of from my own childhood, starting, you know, with the TV show in the 70s and having kind of read it and contemporaneously and when I was young in the 70s and 80s. But I don't really know what she was doing kind of in those middle years of the 50s and 60s. And did she completely, was she completely nerfed? And did, did she just, just become a Lois Lane who wore a different costume? Or was she a little bit more than that, at least? Learning to fly. Yeah. You have been spared a, a horrible fate if you missed the 50s and 60s. As soon as, as Marston dies, she is passed off to people who, if I'm allowed to pass judgment, didn't care as much about her as he did. Justice League was becoming super popular. And there is a, a panel I can see in my head of her saying, oh, I wish I could join you boys, but there's just too much mail to answer. 
she becomes their secretary. And then even from then, she is stripped entirely of the Wonder Woman identity and becomes just Diana Prince, who is hyper concerned with her fashion boutique and with marrying Steve Trevor. And I do believe she owns a taco cart in at least one of those comics, if I'm remembering correctly. But it's this kind of miserable period where not only is she not popular, but comics are not popular. They have undergone this huge transformation where their superheroes, because there is no war to fight, got weird plot lines in space or, you know, fighting monsters and, and nobody was reading those anymore. So what they decided to read instead were true crime comics. And those ended up being so violent and graphic by the standards of the 50s and, and quite honestly, today's standards that they were banned. They were burned in bonfires, they were banned, and then the Comic Code Authority steps in to say, here is exactly what kind of story you are allowed to tell. Wonder Woman did not meet those standards. She was too sexy. She was too forward thinking. She did not represent what they wanted the ideal woman to be. So she was really relegated to the back burner until the 70s. And there's credit given to Gloria Steinem for finding her again, essentially, and, and reinventing her with her cover on Ms. Magazine. That kind of popularity that comes from the second wave of feminism, that's what brings her back to Linda Carter and to being powerful and to using Diana Prince as an identity, but not her only identity. I will say that show is really steeped in the 70s and is fairly bad television, just because television was kind of bad in the 70s. But yeah, she really is a very powerful force in that TV show in a way that this is before the time of some people on this podcast, but maybe every kid like plays at TV shows. We would like play Wonder Woman all the time. Like that was one of like that in Gilligan's Island. It was just, and it was really popular. And to have girls spinning around with their arms out to become Wonder Woman was, uh, that was part of childhood play. It was awesome. And it really sparked a lot of then imaginative storytelling just among ourselves, which is Kids don't know that TV is bad. I think that is a universal truth. I can't believe my parents watched it. Maybe they didn't. I don't know who watched these programs. It seemed to have sort of a love boat level of sensibility. <laughs> like that same cheesy, long form, supposedly comedic setup. It undergoes this really interesting transformation that I will admit I did not like grow up watching these. They are a little bit before my time, but I do love them as part of Wonder Woman's history. And the stuff about Nazis, the early, early seasons of that show where they said she's going to be in her roots and she's going to fight Nazis, they didn't sell, which I find to be so interesting. They wanted the campy 70s feel for it to make her relevant again. So I, I can't speak to what television was like in the 70s or if it all looked like that. It sounds like maybe it did. But that's what they wanted for her. It was it was almost intentional. I had thought that this had been rebooted recently because I confused it with the bionic woman. That is how similar all this 70s stuff was. That this and the $6 million man, like, I don't know, those kind of all blend together for me as far as what was actually going down at the time. Mark, they tried to. In the 2011, there was a TV pilot from... Uh, David E. Kelly wrote the pilot, and there's a crazy picture of Wonder Woman. She's no longer wearing, she has like tight pants on. Did any of you see this? Yeah. Well, Mark is showing us, for, for the listeners, Mark is showing us the cover of what? It's a graphic novel from J. Michael Straczynski from around that time, Odyssey. There's a whole thing about how he redesigned the costume to make it actually something you could fight in and did not seem as sexist, though, of course, it is very skin tight and sexy. But so are the men's. 
you know, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that. I think it is funny to me still that our Wonder Woman today, our Gal Gadot, is still in things that would be difficult to fight in. Not as much so as some other superheroes that we've seen. But kind of understanding like the time when this came out, how that costume originally did probably show a lot more power. Like the the idea, yes, it was sex and it's sexy and they probably wanted a lot of men to to buy it and read it. But also the power of a woman to be able to show her legs and her body in a particular way did show, you know, it showed power in a way that women weren't allowed to really. And now women are allowed to. And I think we find in modern days, some women find power in showing it and some women find power in, like for me, myself, it's got to be practical. The more practical it can be to fight, the better. And that doesn't mean you can't look great doing it. That's why I loved Captain Marvel had, I think, one of the best costumes for superheroes that we've seen, in my opinion. Yeah. And this debate goes on even just between the films. There was a big issue with the 2017 Justice League where they redesigned the Amazon's costumes. And now the Amazon costumes, Erica, like you said, like already have some questionability to them, whether they're like, quote unquote, historically accurate or whether they're functional is super subjective. But uh, Justice League came in and Joss Whedon said, no, sports bras or regular bras only. And female viewership said, why? Why would I wear that? Why would I wear less than a swimsuit to do my superhero work in, to do my Amazonian work? And there was a difference between even just those costumes. There was something empowering about 2017's Wonder Woman, the Amazons, the way they looked, the way they moved, and between Justice League, which came out less than six months after that movie. I didn't realize that. Are folks aware of Herland, the... Charlotte Perkins Gilman novels. This is something we covered in Partially Examined Life on our feminism episode. And just in terms of talking about what would the ideal all-woman society be, I think it's a little bit of a kludge to make them also be Amazons, to make them also be warriors. The fact that they have no one to fight, and yet they are so scarred by their martial past and how they were enslaved at some point that they train all the time against each other because they might have to fight at some point, you know, whereas Herland is sort of more of a, a straightforward thought experiment. What if you didn't have testosterone causing all this aggression? It becomes a much more rational, this all female society that's, that's in an isolated place and men roll across it. This is early 20th century book and are able to see what their society is like. And, you know, they're just much more cooperative and rational and kind of what you'd expect as opposed to Amazonian ass kickers with their very particular religion and hangups in terms of it's not always straightforwardly truth and justice. It's I have taken sacred oaths and these other things that are pulled from or related to Greek mythology. They can be a seemingly violent society, which is almost in contrast to what maybe their viewership would like them to be. And Herland and uh, Sultana's Dream is another feminist utopia, 1905, and comes out of colonial India, says, without men, there would be peace. And Sultana's Dream makes me laugh because they are not removed from men. They just lock them up. They're not allowed to leave the house. It's a fabulous little short story and is, is very funny. But the Amazons are so complicated in that way because they are violent at times but they're not always facetious. But then again, it depends on what you read. The New 52 had 
quite a lot to say about what the Amazons did and didn't do in their spare time. But it's complicated. It asks a lot of questions about like, what do we see, not just like society as where do we pin violence on, but who do we see women as in our society? Must they be like peacemakers? Or can they be more? Do they have to be more? For something a little more recent than these two things from the early 1900s, there's 2014 episode of Rick and Morty Raising Gazorpazorp, where we have the Belushis who live on the planet and then the female counterpart of that race that never has contact with them. They just send out sex robots to collect semen. But otherwise, they just live in this all-female society. And it's made by men. I should say this. This property is made by men and it's done for yucks. But I think they land on some of the same conclusions. I'm not sure that all that much thought ever goes into this. I shouldn't say not that much thought goes into it, but it's so easy to land on your first conclusion that you never reach a second one to say, oh, well, okay, we've gotten rid of men and what would happen? And then like, no, like think a little harder about what would happen and maybe come up with your second or third idea might be a little bit more interesting. And again, not really pointing a finger at Rick and Morty because again, when someone's just doing it for laughs and it's only a half hour long, you can get away with a lot. I was really glad that this movie, Wonder Woman 84, does go back to, I'm calling it Paradise Island, Mark. And this was released that the first three minutes were, were put online, so anyone should not feel like that's been spoiled because you can go watch the opening scene. It was good to go back there and to continue to see Diana's youth, and I hope we go back there again at some point. Does anyone know, have more Wonder Woman movies been greenlit, greenlighted? It's under negotiation. Patty Jenkins says she will do it provided that the movie theater industry is still standing. That was her big push with Wonder Woman 1984. And the reason it was delayed is because she wanted it to be in theaters desperately. So she said that she will do a third one if that is a, is a viable option. And if she doesn't, I will do it for her. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just get back to the Wonder Woman 84 a little bit. One of the points that my husband brought up that he really, really liked about this film is that it's not a story about how strong Wonder Woman is. It's about the power of truth and combating people who aren't going to punch her, but people who can control people, you know, with their minds or their persuasion. And that's a really interesting take. We didn't have as many fight scenes. We had a couple fight scenes, but it wasn't so much about that as it was about using the power of truth and also like self-awareness to decide within ourselves what is really important and what we're giving up when we try to gain something else. Is that worth, can we spoil the ending now? <laughs> yeah, I think we're nearer to the end of the podcast enough, right? That we can say, if you haven't seen it by now, go ahead and, and watch and come back. So can we now air our beefs about specific things? Mark, you go first. I did want to ask what you thought of this thematic thing about truth, you know, that this is supposed to be one of her defining characteristics of virtue is that she is not a dissembler, although she has a secret identity, I guess. I think some of the comics are more straightforward. According to this film, you know, she's got the lasso of truth. She's all about truth. And there's something about these wishes that has been the main mischief making through the whole thing. And I actually thought that the God of Lies was going to show up because it seems like in a lot of the comics I was looking at, she's fighting gods a lot. But no, okay, this artifact was dropped into the world by the God of Lies and corrupts all these people into making these wishes like the monkey's paw that have a price to them. And she somehow connects this. It seems a little shoehorned to me. 
that making these wishes is somehow a violation of truth, or maybe the violation of truth is denying that the bad thing, that the price is actually being paid. And so somehow getting everybody to recant these wishes is supposed to restore truth, make truth more straightforward, is pointing out how our integrity requires us to, I guess, not wish unnaturally for things, but to do the hard work or whatever. Did folks think that even sort of was coherent as a message and actually made sense? I thought it was actually in beautiful conversation with the first movie. And the two scenes that I think of compared to each other are the scene from the first film right after she kills Ludendorff and is confused as to why there's still a war. And she absolves herself of involvement with mankind. She and Steve argue back and forth and she says, this is not my fault. This, I am not to blame for this. Mankind do not deserve me. And it's Steve who says that it's not about deserve, like it's what you believe. And the second film, to me, takes that idea that that she comes to terms with in that first film, the I believe in love, and says that not only do you have to believe in love, but you have to believe in the possibility of better things, and that you can't take shortcuts to get to those better things. We just have to work towards it. And it took me a little while to piece that together. So in terms of coherence, it was definitely on like the second or third watch that that really cemented for me. But that opening scene where her aunt tells her, where Antiope tells her, like, you took the shortcut and you know that you wouldn't have been the winner had you finished the trials. That's the theme that carried through. The idea of shortcuts and truth-telling and love were all connected. And I liked the dialogue that they had between the two films. I thought it worked very well to say that Diana is still learning. She's still a hero, but she hasn't figured everything out yet. She's not perfect. She'd be boring if she was perfect. I agree with you. I hadn't thought about that. But, you know, if you look at the beginning of this film, not only does she take a shortcut, but the reason that she has to take a shortcut is because she keeps comparing where she is to where everybody else is. She's not paying attention to her own path. She's constantly looking back behind her. And that's what causes her to fail. And then instead of just accepting the failure or finishing and coming in last, she decides to, oh, there's a shortcut. I can still make it because I should have gotten this. There's this feeling of I was owed this, so I'm going to take it. And that comparison is what's driving all these monkey paw wishes, right? This Barbara, I want to be like Diana. You're wishing for things that other people have. And that seems to be driving a lot of what's going on here. Mark, I think what you said about the trickster god, I was really expecting that that character might show up as an actual character, in part because all we had in this movie were victims. We had people who were wishing on a monkey's paw and being destroyed by it. And I think the villain was somehow a rock, which is just crazy. Like, that's not anything. And it was super frustrating. We have these characters who get redeemed because they were not evil. They just were victims of just being flawed people like the rest of us. I found that supremely unsatisfying. There, I have, aired, I have aired my beef. Well, I've aired one of my two beefs. Anyway, go ahead, Vi. I was so hoping you would come back to this villain problem. I will admit, like, I agree with you in part that both these movies, I think, have a weird relationship with their villains. And the first movie, I think, sacrifices a lot to the red herring and how we don't know who Ares is until the very end. But they also do a little bit of fan service in a way that might get in the way of their storytelling. And the first movie, Dr. Poison is the first villain that we really encounter in the Wonder Woman comics, and she's the B villain for the movie. In my opinion, she could have been the perfect villain for Diana if she had been given a little bit more attention. 
And I feel the same way about Cheetah and Barbara Ann. And that she is probably the most iconic of the Wonder Woman villains because she exists in contrast to Diana. Not just because she is a woman and this is a female-dominated story, but that because she, in her various iterations, has so much to say to Diana's character. I'll give you that, that the movies, I think, play a little bit too much with, like, who is the real villain and is that worth exploring? I mean, they lose themselves a little bit in that. But I think this movie's antagonist was once again maybe is a better way to put it, humanity and its own faults that we ended up being the ultimate villains because for a moment we thought that what we wanted was more important than this greater good. Now the actual like action of wishing upon it, yeah, that's The Rock and it's Pedro Pascal as The Rock, but not like Dwayne Johnson, like the physical rock. (laughs) But at the end of the day, like Diana isn't defeating Maxwell Lord. She doesn't have to take him out. She has to speak to humanity and say, I know that you are hurting. We're all feeling this way. The only way that we can accomplish anything, the only way to get a better world is to work together and to say that what we desire may not be for the greater good. That was to me the antagonist is desire is the momentary belief that humanity is anything other than good at our core. Because that's what she struggles with in the first film too. I think it was also a great, I don't know why they decided to set this in 1984, but boy, I feel like that was a perfect time to hearken back to in the Reagan era and the wanting and needing and, you know, this idea of like this very inflated wealth that we were seeing. So when Max Lord's character was first introduced, it felt just right. This television personality of you can have this, you already have it great, but can't you have it better and you deserve it. And of course, that's something we still struggle with to this day. But in that time, it was very, it was in the forefront of like even our political landscape. That's just how people seem to believe this is America and we're great. It's this really interesting modern moment. I loved the setting of 1984. Again, was not privy to it, but I love the way it looks. Like first and foremost, like the kind of campiness of those early scenes was to me, I was like, this is modern America. Like this is what it looks like and here is where it was born. But beyond that, it is the moment where we see like inequalities with wealth and with ownership, with ideas. And I thought that it was a really powerful place to put her. More powerful than sticking her in the modern era, which Grant Morrison's comics, the Earth One series, they do. They put her right in the present day. She is at a women's march with the pink hats. And that comic, I love it. It's beautiful. But I think had Patty Jenkins taken that route, we would have said, oh, okay. It wouldn't have spoken to us because it didn't have the longevity to say that we are still in this moment. Can I ask a continuity question? And I don't know if this has been retconned or has been addressed. The first movie, when she gets the picture from Bruce Wayne, is that supposed to be set in modern times? Yes. So that is post Batman versus Superman, which would technically, if we are to believe that it happens in the present day, would be 2016. And we have this thanks for bringing him back to me moment with the photo and the watch. And hasn't she already had this creepy interaction with him in 1984? It seems like her response to all this is off based on this movie now having happened a few decades before or three decades before Wonder Woman happens. I think it hinges on that last real line of his where, spoilers again, are we, are we past that? Oh, we're, we're past that. Cool. 
where she's crying in his arms and she says, I'll never love again. And I just got you back. Like, what am I supposed to do without you? And he says, I'm already gone. To her, he was there emotionally for her, but really like physically, even though we see Chris Pine, whoever was playing shadow Chris Pine is, is really who we are meant to imagine in that moment. And so in the first Wonder Woman where she gets the photograph and then she pulls out the watch and she says, thank you for bringing him back to me. I, I do feel like that's fair, if only because she has come to terms with never really having him back in the first place, that this was a lie. There is also another potential continuity thing. I don't know if you picked up on Brian, but she also says in Batman v Superman, a hundred years ago, I walked away from mankind from a century of horrors. Men made a world where standing together is impossible. But then we find out she actually stepped in in 1984 and like saved mankind. That was my question kind of about this character and what we think about. There's a lot of years that are skipped there. She was just going between a few different identities as being an archaeologist. Like, is it okay to be a superhero in hiding? What is it about the fighting at the mall in particular that she had to come out at that point? It just seems a strange setup plot wise. My absolute favorite Easter eggs in the film are the photographs in her apartment that show her life from 1918 forward, where you see that she's had perhaps like a quiet existence as a hero, but not unimportant, that she is at the liberation of concentration camps in the 40s, and that she has been all across the United States doing what we don't know. But we have to assume based on who she is and her argument that she gives herself up every day and that she's happy sacrificing herself if only she can ask for one thing in return. We have to assume in some part, I think, that she has just been a hero, but quietly, that that, that she hasn't sat back. She just hasn't asked for recognition because with recognition comes maybe responsibilities that she doesn't want. She doesn't want to be Wonder Woman. She just wants to be somebody who knows that humanity is capable of good. And if they need some help along the way, she will be there to help. Still doesn't totally explain the mall scene that she's like fully into doing superhero stuff. But I see where you're going with that, Vi. One of Among Us shared an article called Does Wonder Woman 1984 Have a Steve Trevor Problem in Cinema Blend? When I saw that headline, I thought, oh, are they going to talk about the fact that they are sexually assaulting this man in whom Steve Trevor is inhabiting, who, by the way, is listed in the credits as handsome man. Like, that's all that he gets. Wait, did you think that, Brian, or did you read that? And like, that, that's what I want to know. Did you watch the movie and think, oh, God, they're assaulting this man? As soon as it happened, I thought if the genders had been reversed, this could not have been made because this is so gross. And I think like Wonder Woman's assaulting him. And Steve Trevor is like, kind of is too. Like the whole thing is just nasty and I hate it. Can't I have just this one thing, just this one body of a person whose family probably is wondering why he hasn't called them because he has a ghost of my boyfriend in it? Can't I just have that? As a writer, I would use this to indicate how gross someone was by using that. I mean, the whole thing is just nasty and kind of horrible. That's what I thought the article was going to be about, and it wasn't. It was actually a more reasonable article about, you know, thematic stories and what role a man plays in her life and her emotional development. But that was one of the things I just absolutely did not like about this movie. I thought it was 
just wrong. When you play with magic, storytelling gets immensely messy and gross. And I feel like we see this all over the place, not just in Wonder Woman. My favorite TV show growing up was Once Upon a Time, which had a host of issues with setting rules about magic and then breaking all of them in super kind of disturbing ways. So I agree that it is very weird. And when the guy comes back at the end in the snow and says, well, you know, it's just so beautiful out here. And and you're like, do you know what happened to you? Your body was in Egypt two days ago. You know, there's all those kinds of questions about it. But I think it's more indicative of the particular plot device used for it and less indicative of what Wonder Woman wants in her storytelling. It's just a messy detail. Magic is a messy kind of way to tell stories. They played with this kind of trope in many movies past. And I think what they were probably playing with, because yes, they could have, why couldn't they have just, if it's magic, why can't Steve Trevor just appear like the bombs? But I think they were playing with the idea of his soul, of the soul of Steve Trevor. And I think they might want to bring him back in another film because he's just so great. And now they've brought on this idea of this soul because he said he was somewhere else. You know, he didn't know exactly where it was, but it was good. Then the other part of me thought, well, maybe they did it as a device to help her open up to the idea of love with somebody else. Superman. She's got to get it on with Superman. I mean, it's weird, but I didn't think that. And then all of a sudden I started reading all this stuff about how they had like raped this man. I'll have to think about that more. I do not want to end on that particular <laughs> note. Is there a final thing that does not rape this man that we want to? I would like to know in the comics, does she find love elsewhere? Inside stories, alternate universe? She's kissing Superman in something I just looked at. So I don't know. The New 52 says Wonder Woman and Superman are a power couple for two minutes. Oh, okay. And then they're like not, they're not good for each other, essentially. But uh, many, many, many of the iterations are just different versions of Steve Trevor because the issue with the comics is that they are not one continuity. They are different writers finding the character and saying, what can I do with her? They pick her up and put her in what their version of her world is. So Steve Trevor is malleable in that way. But that being said, like some of the comics have her in relationships with women. She comes from an island of all women. There is a panel, and I'd have to look again to see where it is, where Bruce Wayne asks her, like, why don't you have a boyfriend, essentially? And she looks at him and she goes, I'm from an island of all women. I'll let you figure that one out. So she has room to move around, but she is very often attached to Steve Trevor, if only because the comics don't always speak to one another. They just speak to who is in charge of Wonder Woman right now. And that, to me, is the biggest piece of this. Who is in charge of Wonder Woman? What do they have to say about her? That really defines like what we take away from her, I feel like. Steve Trevor is a trill. He just lives inside the bodies, the host bodies. Well, thank you so much, Vi, for coming back. Can you stick around so we'll, maybe we can, we can get a little more into Wonder Woman minutia in our, our after talk here? I would be honored. All right, so folks can get that if they support us at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. May your, uh, what, what is, does she have a, may your day be wondrous? What is her, does she have a, a phrase that she says? Live long and prosper. Suffering Sappho. I hope you have a wonderful day. Suffering Sappho. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, listeners. Bye. Thanks, bye. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. 
Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.